9, I will be reading verses 33 through 50, though the sermon will be on verses 42 through 48. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we try to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who has done a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Thanks be to God for his holy word. May he bless the reading and preaching of his word. As we have seen so far going through the letter uh, or the gospel of Mark, there is a cost and a responsibility when following Jesus Christ just like anything else we would seek to accomplish in this world. So Jesus has been spending his time teaching his disciples what that cost and responsibility is. It is a high demand. He taught them that it may cost them their lives. And while living, it will be a life of service, serving God and serving others, especially other Christians. Now, the people of God have always been called to be servants throughout the Old Testament. So, uh, this is nothing new. And there has always been one major obstacle for the people of God. And that is sin. Jesus now addresses the root problem for all people, including his disciples. Uh, The problems of humanity are not rooted in poverty. They're not rooted in broken homes or corrupt politics. The problems of humanity are rooted in sin. Sin is the root problem of mankind. Why? Because of sin, we have a problem with God. Sin is a transgression 
against a holy God. And what he says here paints a different picture than what the world has tried to paint of Jesus. Usually when the world mentions Jesus, we hear of him being a promoter of tolerance. The famous passage that is drilled into our minds, which has been ripped out of its context, is judge not that you be not judged. But that passage does not at all mean don't worry about your personal sins, live your life and I'll live mine. No, Jesus speaks of the seriousness of sin and its serious consequences. So he calls on all of his disciples to do some self-examination. Jesus warns all of his followers of the dangers of sin and its consequences. And he gives them direction on how to deal with sin and the true cost of following him. And later on, he will also give the church what it looks like in regard to one another. Uh, But we won't get there today, uh, maybe next week. Uh, First, he warns his disciples about leading others astray. Uh, So he begins by asking us to look outside of ourselves. Uh, As we know, uh, salvation is often emphasized, or I would say overly emphasized, as a personal relationship with Jesus, sometimes at the expense of the church. So we often forget that we are saved to be joined as members to a body. Here, Jesus warns us about leading others in that body astray by our sin. And how it is not just about you and your personal relationship with Jesus. Sin does not only affect the one who commits sin. But our sins have an effect on others as well. So he warns. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. It would be better for him if a great millstone were touched. Uh, were hung around his neck, and he was thrown into the sea. He says this right after he explained to his disciples what it looks like to be a servant, and the fact that whoever gives his disciples a cup of water to drink because they belong to Christ will never lose his reward. This may have been convicting for his disciples because what did they fail to do next? They failed. To receive and serve someone who came in his name. In fact, they try to uh, stop him from casting out demons in his name. So they were running the danger of leading another believer astray. And so he is beginning to warn them of the direction they were heading in. See, when Jesus speaks of the little ones, he is not just speaking of the child he placed in their midst. Little ones is in reference to his disciples, all of his disciples, such as ourselves. Why? Because his disciples, such as ourselves, are vulnerable to sin. We can be easily led astray. So whoever causes other Christians to sin, he says he is in a boatload of trouble. Now, this text has been misused over the years to suggest that uh, Christians are to be careful to have a good time in public because you may cause someone to sin. We know that passage about causing the weaker brother to stumble. So they say, don't laugh too much. Be stoic. 
wear plain colors, nothing too bright. Women, don't wear lipstick because you may cause someone to sin. You see, very superficial. And in actuality, the word used for sin is the same root word used for scandal or to scandalize. It means to lead astray completely. The force of the word means to cause unbelief in Jesus. Now think of the disciples' situation. And how do you think people would have responded to the disciples' actions so far? What do you think all of their grumbling and infighting would have caused for outsiders looking in? They were puffed up with pride because they walked with Jesus. So they were arguing over who was the greatest. And out of envy, they tried to stop someone from casting out demons in Jesus' name. They were being divisive. And they were indifferent to the fact that this man was a believer. He was warning them of their pride and envy as they dismissed another believer. And this could have led him the other way. This sounds like the kind of things that go on in most churches today. And how do others view the church today as they look at us and see all the infighting and the grumbling and complaining? See, for us, there is always that danger. There is that danger of being puffed up with the knowledge of Christ that we become prideful and cause simple Christians to stumble and fall away. You often hear of cases where Christians are rich in knowledge, but poor in love, which causes many to leave the church. Now, we don't want to get rid of knowledge, but knowledge means nothing if there is no love for those whom Christ died for. What message does this send to them? What will it do to their faith? Will it mislead them into thinking that all churches are like this? And there are consequences to leading other Christians astray from Christ. It says it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. A millstone is what was used to grind grains collected from the harvest. It was shaped like a wheel. It was so big that only big animals were used to turn it. Humans aren't able uh, to do so unless, of course, you were Samson. Uh, Samson did this in Judges 16. Uh, So to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the the sea, uh, as the sea symbolized a, a place of terror, chaos, and it was the home of demons... This would be a horrible way to die. At least I think so. But he is saying it is better to die this way compared to what it truly deserves. It deserves far worse. Now, when I read this, I consider church history and all of the false teachings that came in through throughout the centuries, teachings that taught that Jesus uh, did not have a body, teachings that said that Jesus was not uh, both human and divine, teachings that denied the Trinity, teachings that denied uh, the Bible to be the Word of God, teachings that denied 
The reality of sin and the reality of its consequences and teachings that denied that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. Imagine what is in store for those who teach such things. Secondly, notice what he, you know, who he turns to next. He moves from asking us to consider others to self-examination. And he uses body parts to illustrate the seriousness of sin, what extremes we ought to go to against sin, and the consequences of sin. He uses three body parts, the hand, the foot, and the eye. All three can be used to sin, both against other people and against God. The hand can be used to steal or to murder. The foot can be used to travel to a place where sin has been planned out. In other words, the foot symbolizes premeditated sin, or as uh, Paul uses it, their feet are swift to shed blood. And the eye has been used to covet, lust, and commit adultery. And all three body parts can be involved in carving out idols for ourselves to worship. This actually summarize, summarizes what was going on in the Garden of Eden when Eve walked over with her feet to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes. She took of its fruit with her hand and ate. And when she gave it to Adam and he ate, man fell into sin. And the consequence was death, for the wages of sin is death. So Jesus begins to sound like an extremist. You know you're not really preaching until someone regards you as an extremist. And they only regard you as an extremist so they have an excuse not to listen. See, Jesus sounds like an extremist. He is not wishy-washy with sin. He is not like many false teachers today who try to explain sin away as something you no longer need to worry about. He is speaking to his disciples the same way he would speak to the church today when he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, Tear it out. That is how serious sin is and how much of an offense it is to God. Now, according to the Levitical law, it says you shall not make any cuts on your body. This for the Jews would develop into meaning that our body parts are precious and they are not to be purposely mutilated. It was considered sinful. So the thought of cutting off body parts would have been rejected by most Jews of that day. But Jesus said, it is better that you cut those body parts off than it is to sin against God. The author of Hebrews stresses this importance after he says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us when he says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted 
to the point of shedding your blood. Now, he is not actually calling us to go home and cut off our hands, feet, pluck out our eyes, or cut off any body part that causes us to sin. If that was the case, we would all be cut down to our kneecaps. And even that may lead us to sin. Sin is rooted in our nature. The desires of the heart is what needed to be changed. We can't get rid of sin by cutting off body parts. We need a new nature. But nevertheless, we are to watch our actions as well as our hearts. Our hearts are not disconnected from our body parts. We sin through our body parts. Over the years in evangelicalism, there has has been this overemphasis on the heart and heart piety, as if we are to sit in our prayer closet saying, I need to change my heart, Lord, change my heart, Lord, change my heart. But then there is no change in our actions. As if there is a disconnect from our heart and what we do with our body parts. Uh, Someone recently tried to tell me, uh, he, he believes he is a Christian and he has a very skewed view of Christianity. And he told me uh, that we have two walks. A physical walk and a spiritual walk. Uh, that is to say that you can pray, you, you, you can have a spiritual life, and at the same time sin with your body parts uh, and live a sinful life. You see, that false teaching was dealt with by Jesus and the disciples, as we will see throughout uh, the letters of the New Testament. But Jesus said no. Jesus said, you judge a tree by its fruits. And James says, faith without works is dead. Now, we're not saved by cutting off our body parts or cutting off our limbs. But we're saved to cut our limbs. Your physical actions tell us what you believe spiritually. Faith leads to action. So here he is teaching us about how serious sin is in the sight of God and how seriously we are to take it and how God is more important than what you consider to be important, including your body parts. So he calls us to examine what it is that would lead us to sin, then act accordingly and immediately. It's like that saying, and I believe my mother-in-law likes to say, don't save for tomorrow what you can do today. You are to act on it immediately. And instead of using our hand, foot, or eye to sin, We are to present our entire bodies to God. We are to do whatever it takes to cut sin out of our lives and seek to please God. I know this may be confusing. Because according to scripture, when we're saved, sin no longer has dominion over us. Sin no longer reigns. But in the Christian, it still remains. And our call from this point on, is to cut it out. 
Uh, we have three examples of three saints of old who all felt a sin through their hands, feet, and eyes. David, Solomon, and Samson. But then there is one example of a sinner like you and I by the name of Joseph. Who was tempted by Potiphar's wife one day when uh, they were alone. What did he do? He ran. He fled the house and left his garment behind in her hand. In other words, he ran off naked. Quite embarrassing, but he didn't sin. His reasoning was, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? How can I, who have been saved by grace, sin against my God who loves me? My question is, how can I have this same resolve? He did whatever it took to get away from the possibility of sin. Can we say that is what we would do in that situation? Now we must remember, Joseph was a sinner. He is not the perfect example. Joseph was just a type of Christ. But Joseph in his life was prideful. He was sinful. Just like you and I. But Jesus is saying here that we are to be engaged in the battle and there there is to be no negotiation with sin. In other words, today we, we have a problem with our cell phones, don't we? Our cell phones, our smartphones, if you want to call it that, is easy access to many sins. And I'm not just talking about pornography. We can also talk about slander, as we see many Christians involved today, people who call themselves Christians, involved in slander, slandering people they disagree with. Or we see gossip all over the internet. What Jesus is saying here, if your phone is leading you to sin, smash that phone. Get rid of that phone. Oh, well, but I do it to work. I do it for this. I, you know, it's, it's very, it makes it very easy for my life. Well, smash it. That's what he's saying. There is to be no negotiation with sin. As John says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You're probably asking the question, how do we do that? Well, according to Scripture... It is by the Spirit. It's by the Spirit. Paul says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It is by the Spirit that He calls us to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. It is not disconnected from God. It is not disconnected from the Spirit of God and the love of God. But this is what every Christian is called to do. This is part of our training as disciples. I grew up around many people who claimed to be Christians. And they often relied on the fact that they were baptized, that they went to church occasionally, they received the sacrament, but then they would go off and live sinful lives without a care or consideration for God. Now, when we approach a a, a text like this, in its high calling, its high demand, 
We must also remember all of Scripture. We must also remember all of Scripture. This cutting off of limbs, this cutting off of sin, is not a one and done deal. In light of the entire context of Scripture, we are to do the work of cutting our limbs immediately, but also it takes time. It is a lifelong process of cutting off sin. It is a lifelong process of coming to the cross for forgiveness and going back out to war against sin. Uh, We see this in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Paul says, I do what I do not want to do, and that I do not want to do, that is what I do. The evil I do not want, that's what I do. The good I do want to do, that's what I don't do. But then when you get to Romans 8, he says, there is no condemnation in Christ, and that the Christian is loved. And nothing can separate us from that love. So what is it? Is he confused? Are we saved by grace? Or do we kill sin? Both. Both. Are we saints or are we sinners? Both. And it is the constant acknowledgement of this that will lead us to the cross And go back to war against our sin. Sometimes it feels like we fail and there is no end to it. Yet it is our utmost call. We are called to be holy. Why? Because God is holy. Because God is holy. And we are to remember there are consequences to sin. What are those consequences? Well, the consequence is death and hell. Hell. Now, before I I get on with it, the topic of hell is not to be taken lightly. So often today you have preachers, teachers, Christians who often teach on the topic pridefully. They teach as though they are happy that people are going to hell. As one preacher has said, which I heard over the week, they teach about hell with dry eyes. They teach about hell without any heart for the lost. Forgetting the fact that Jesus wept over the state of Jerusalem. That Jesus wept over the state of those who called themselves God's people. And he died. So we wouldn't go to hell. So hell is not to be approached casually or flippantly or pridefully with a grin or a smile or joy as if we're happy. That people are going to hell. And another pattern we should know throughout the scriptures, throughout the New Testament, is that Jesus explains hell to those who profess to be saints. Notice that. 
He explains hell to those who claim to follow him or those who claim to be holy. To the Pharisees and the scribes who thought they didn't need Jesus. He gives them warnings. But then on the flip side, he explains heaven to those who confessed to be sinners. You think of the woman at the well, Zacchaeus, and the thief on the cross. So notice the pattern. And notice who he expounds hell to. We must always consider the context of the passage. But on the other hand, over the years, even in Christian circles, the existence of hell has come into question. And once the existence of hell came into question, the responsibility to kill our sin or to repent of sin in light of that truth has also fallen by the wayside. We are called throughout Scripture to repent. We are called to repent of sin and believe that Christ has died for our sin so that we may be forgiven. But Satan continues to use this lie to fool Christians. You will not surely die. The more you sin, the more graceful abound. Go ahead. The world is yours. Take what you want and enjoy it. But Jesus warns, it is better for you to enter life that is eternal life, crippled, than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. This is a warning for the ages, isn't it? This is a message that is unacceptable by the modern hearers of today. The word used for hell here is Gehenna. It is taken from a place known as the Valley of Hinnom. This was known as a landfill where the trash and other waste of Jerusalem was burned. And and in this dump, you would still find worms eating the carcasses of various animals. So to explain the duration and the torment of hell, he quotes the last verse in the book of Isaiah when he says, It is where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Hell is an unquenchable fire, meaning it burns, and the one who is burning is never consumed, never becomes ash, which means the fire lasts forever. It is a horrific thought. It brings torment and anxiety just to think about it. It is amazing how anyone could preach or talk about it casually. And without a torment in the soul. It is amazing how anyone would ever turn hell into a joke. There's that famous quote we find in the movies. I'll see you in hell. Or when we want to uh, tell someone off. We say go to hell. Or when you hear others complain. My life is hell. They obviously Don't understand the severity of it. The worst torment we could imagine in this life is not comparable to what Jesus has just described because here in this world, there is still God's mercy and grace and the suffering will soon end. But in hell, there is no end. 
It's often said that in hell, hell is the absence of God. No, that's not true. Hell is not the absence of God. God is everywhere, even in hell. In hell, you're in the presence of His wrath. And it is the absence of His mercy. But hell is what every human being deserves for sinning against the Holy God. If any one of us were sent to hell, it would be what we deserve. Hell is the worst place and the worst thing that could ever happen to us. Worse than what we could ever imagine. But we must also think of it in light of God's holiness. God is holy. And not only that, God is love. We must also think of hell in light of God's love for His creatures. He is a jealous God who does not want to see His children be led astray. That's why He gave the warnings about leading other Christians astray and being led astray ourselves. He loves His people. So He can't be indifferent to our sin. But the good news is, on the other hand, there's no good news without the bad news of hell, right? And vice versa. On the other hand, think of what Christ has provided for us by taking on hell to himself. What grace, what mercy to save us from sin, death, Satan, and hell. What Christ will be prepared to do as he tells his disciples to cut off sin was that he will take on hell for them. Remember, we must read this passage in light of the entire context. Do you think the disciples cut out all of their sin at that moment? No, they they took a while to get there. And as we know from Peter's example, that he continued to fight against his sin. But look at what Christ was prepared to do to save us from sin, from hell, and from the grips of Satan. Out of His unending love and grace, He sent His Son to die for our sins so that we could be with God in the loveliest place we could ever imagine, gazing into the glorious face of Jesus Christ. So the cross is our only escape from the wrath of God. So the question for us today is what will be our response to this gospel? That Jesus takes on the hell that we deserve. Because the kingdom is worth losing some limbs. It is worth it. It is worth cutting sin out of our lives. Like a dear friend used to say to me, who is now with the Lord. He said, would you trade one moment of pleasure in this world for an eternity of bliss in the next? And I'll leave you with that. We'll continue in this passage next week. Amen.